Um, welcome to our family gathering. Um, it's great to be with you guys this morning, um, especially on such a sort of miserable day outside. So, a number of people commented the fact that I have a canoe on the top of my van, and so the running joke is that, what's that? <laughs> Thank you, Gary. Um, yeah, so I don't know anything that you don't know, so I'm just saying... <laughs> I just come prepared, that's all. Um, no, I was camping with, uh, with Caleb and Ethan this weekend, and uh, we got out of there before it started raining, so we were very wise, I think. <laughs> um, so anyway, good morning. It's great to be with you guys today. We're, uh, we're actually finishing up our series. We've been uh, in the book of Revelation now for the last seven weeks. We've been looking at uh, the seven letters to the seven churches that are found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And we've been calling the series My Dearest Bride because this is a love letter from Jesus the groom to his bride, the church. And he is instructing them in how to uh, come back into a full, loving, joy-filled marital relationship with himself. And so as, as Jesus' bride, as the church, we have been asking that same question. What, is it, what does Jesus have to say to us as his bride? And what does he want us to know about himself and our circumstances? And how does that change the way that we might live um, with him and for him and, and in the world? So, um, so as I mentioned, we're, we're wrapping that up today. Um, we may come back to this actually in the month of December. I've... I've was praying through um, kind of the, the, the end of the year, and we were looking at uh, December in particular. It's common, obviously, to do a, uh, a Christmas sort of based series through the month of December as you get kind of closer and closer to Christmas. I, I think we're going to do something a little bit different this year, and I actually think we're going to look at the last part of the book of Revelation, and we're going to do a series called The Last Christmas. So Christmas just means Christ come, right? He's He's, he's entering into the world, and we always look at the first time he came, which is good and right, um, but I think this year we're going to look at the very last time, and we're, because here's what it does. The, the, the month of December, the four weeks leading up to Christmas is what we call Advent, which means um, anticipating the arrival of Jesus, and it's so hard for us to put ourselves in the place of what it must have felt like for people before the Savior arrived in the first century, isn't it? It's hard to like tap into the needs and the desires and the hopes and the dreams of those people. But I think if you start to look at the last time Jesus comes, many of those same desires and hopes and dreams that they have end up surfacing in your own heart as we think about him coming for the last time and forever. And so I think that's what we're going to, the direction that we're going for, for December. Anyway, I've, uh, I've given too much away. I've spoiled it. Um, Laodicea. Uh, Laodicea is the last of the seven churches that get written to in Revelation, and we know actually a whole lot about this city. There's a whole lot that's been written and and recorded uh, for us of what was true of this city, not just in the first century, but kind of throughout their history. And there are three things that are really, really important for us to remember as we read Jesus' words. I want these things to be the, the backdrop of how you... Uh, hear what Jesus has to say to these people. And th- so here, the first one is that they were 
uh, leaders in banking and wealth. They, were, they, they had a, a financial center, a banking center. Actually, they were the, the kind of the clearinghouse for the entire region. And they were so wealthy, in fact, that uh, I mentioned last week that Philadelphia was hit by a, a, an earthquake in 61 AD. Well, that same earthquake hit Laodicea as well. And they were the only city that we know of in the Roman Empire that when Rome was saying, hey, we will come in and help you rebuild your city, they were the only city that said, no thanks, we can, do, we can save ourselves. So they, they, they had tremendous wealth. And they were the ones that rebuilt their city, all on their very own. Very independent-minded people. Um, second thing that we know about Laodicea is that they were a fashion-leading city. Um, there were a, a particular kind of black sheep that was common uh, in the region, and weavers were able to turn that into a particularly fine wool that was made to, that, that that was created um, or used to make fine clothing that was especially sought after in the region. And then the last thing is that they were leaders in the medical field as well. That it, it was a place that had a large medical school and and especially a place that, that specialized in the healing of the eyes. They had a particular kind of eye powder that they would apply to people's eyes to help them uh, in their sight. So they're leaders in the medical field, they're leaders in the fashion world, they're leaders in the banking world. So if you had aspirations to become great in the world's eyes, if you wanted to be somebody, if you wanted to be kind of an independent mover and shaker uh, in the world, either in the area of medicine or fashion or wealth, Laodicea was for you. It was the place that you would go. I want you to keep that in mind again as we hear Jesus' words to His bride in this city. So we're going to read Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. To the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How many of you have heard, at least you've read this or you've heard the imagery that this 
uh, passage alludes to, right? I mean, it is pervasive. There are so many phrases have made their way into our popular understanding of Christianity uh, that they're almost unavoidable. And so uh, imagery like lukewarm Christians and I stand at the door and knock or you're neither hot nor cold. I mean, all, all of these things, we, 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 they're, they're so pervasive. They're so every... I mean, all of us have heard them. Now, here's the problem with that though. Our familiarity with this letter is, is precisely what makes it so misunderstood. It is the most misunderstood, I think, places in the entire Bible. Um, because whenever you hear, you, if, you, if, if you bring up the church of Laodicea in any kind of conversation with anyone who's, who just has an, an inkling of understanding of, or have heard that, that term before, what's the thing that comes to mind for you or for them? This, this is a church in trouble, right? And, and what, what kind of connotation do you often have when it comes to how Jesus feels about this church? He's incredibly unhappy. Not just unhappy. He's, what's that? He's disgusted by them. They make him sick. I mean, you've heard that, right? I've heard that. As I was reading it this week, I felt that way. Um, we, we often think of Jesus when he looks at his church in Laodicea, that he's just, oh, I can't stand these people. I don't want anything to do with these people. I feel dirty when I'm around these people. We just, the, the term Laodicean is like a dirty word in the Christian world. And I was reading a number of commentators and this week, and all of them, every single one of them, focus intently on what's wrong with this community, what's bad about the community, and, and how Jesus feels about their badness. And I actually want to submit to you something entirely different. I actually would suggest to you this morning that this letter is saturated with good news. Now, you don't believe me yet, but maybe I can, I'll try to convince you, okay? Um, that, that, that if we have ears to hear this good news, it would change everything. And, and this is the good news that we proclaim. That no matter what kind of friend you have been to Jesus, Jesus is a faithful friend to you. He does not force himself on you but rather He shows you the self-inflicted wounds of your condition. He welcomes you back into your calling and He stands ready to walk into the parts of your life where you have restricted His access and influence. No matter what kind of friend you have been to Jesus, Jesus is a faithful friend to you. That's the good news that we need to hear. Uh, verse 14 says, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I need a friend like Jesus. <laughs> because I'm often not a faithful friend. Um, this became uh, cringingly uh, apparent to me 
several weeks ago. I was uh, at our BRN annual meeting, and uh, I walked into the room, and uh, my friend Buff was, uh, was there. And he's been, I mentioned this a long time ago, but he was going through, and still is, going through cancer treatments. He has sinus cancer. And, um, and he was feeling well enough to attend, and so he was there. And, and I kind of caught his glance from across the room, and he smiled and waved to me, and I sort of smiled and waved to him. And, um, but I had realized as soon as I saw him that it had been an eternity since I had reached out to him to see how he was doing. You ever have that, like, where you're like, man, I know, like, you run into somebody and you're like, oh, shoot. And you, like, don't want to make eye contact with this person. You don't want to talk with them because you realize, like, you've dropped the ball in some major way. And so I, the meeting's going on, and I've got my phone out, and I was looking through my text messages to see when the last time is I talked to him. And I realized it was December 20th of last year. And I just felt horrible. I felt like my stomach dropped out from, from within me. And, I, and so everything ended, and it was time for a break to kind of move to the next section. I came up to him with tears in my eyes. And he started, he, like, he, he just came up to me, and he's like, starts talking to me about like what's going on and he's asking me questions and he's being a good friend and I was like I I can't I I need to stop you I need your forgiveness he goes what are you talking about I'm like I haven't asked you how you are doing and you've been going through chemo for like almost a year <laughs> and he goes ah don't worry about it and he just like keeps going I'm, I'm like no buff like, I need to hear, I need you to know, I need your forgiveness. I've been an unfaithful friend to you. And um, he does what we always do, which isn't him being a bad friend at all, but he, you know, when, when someone sins against you and then they ask for your forgiveness, what's the first thing that kind of comes out of our mouth? No, it's, no problem, it's okay, you know? Which is basically to say, oh, don't worry, that didn't hurt, or I've, you know, and maybe it didn't to him. It, it probably wasn't as big a deal for him as it was for me. But I, I, I was like, it wasn't okay. It's, what I told him is, I need, I need to hear the words from you, I forgive you. If you don't, it's okay. I, I, I want to be a friend to you, but I need to hear those words from you. And he said, Jay, I forgive you. And so we, we made plans to have lunch. I just had lunch with him this past week, and it was like, I, I walked away from him, and I'm like, I missed my friend. It's so good just to sit down with him and dream together and talk about the church and talk about our families, and it was so life-giving for me. But he was a good friend, and I wasn't. And I, the, I just want to ask you, what... When it comes to the kinds of friendship that you offer to other people, can you be, let's just be honest. I've already been honest. I've kind of maybe set the depth here. What are the ways that you, in particular, are often, if you see a pattern in your life, what are the ways that you are often not a faithful friend to others? So it's, it's easy to talk about how others haven't been faithful to you. When it comes to you, yeah. Yeah, yeah, out of sight, out of mind is a huge one, you know. I just, Matthew, I want to remind you, Jesus is a faithful friend to you, no matter what kind of friend you've been. 
Yeah, Ruth. Yeah. So if I open the door uh, of friendship again to this person, then it's going to open the door of need, and I don't really want to be exposed to that need, so I'll just keep the door shut. Yeah, that's a great, I mean, it's not a, <laughs> it's a great one. No, I'm just, <laughs> it's, a, it's a pervasive one, I'll say that. I, I resonate with that deeply. Yeah, Lord. Yeah, and one thing I've noticed this about you, Laura, is that you are, um, you, you are often faithful in pursuing people in friendship. Um, but you're right. Part of that pursuing of others and giving of yourself to others and kind of laying yourself out there is a vulnerable thing. And when you do that for someone and then they don't reciprocate, now you can, you, because you, your expectations weren't met, you can kind of hold that against them and say, well, maybe the next time I won't reach out to you, or maybe you weren't as good a friend to me as I was trying to be to you, and, and that can be tremendously damaging to friendships, right? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so we can, we can ask the question of people, like, is this a safe person? To, to, how are they going to receive my friendship? You know, are they going to be able to bear the weight of it if my life looks complicated or... Or whatever. I mean, there, there, I was all kinds of things. Like, especially when, when, when things are rocky, right? It's one thing. It's easy to be a friend when things are going well, but when there's tension or there's there's uh, conflict in the relationship, sometimes we can allow those conflicts to fester, and we can become passive aggressive. Um, we can become absent, or we can place conditions on the friendship. So I'm going to be a certain kind of friend to you if you're a certain kind of friend to me. Or, which actually leads us to unforgiveness, and we end up harboring those things against other people. Some of us actually, when, when we're, fr- we're we can be friends with people because we, we, we know that we can kind of exercise our will onto that person. And we can be somewhat authoritarian with our friendship. And we sort of like to be in control and we'll befriend people that we can kind of manipulate or, or use to our benefit. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of brokenness. Now, here, here's, um, here's my theory, okay? Is that whatever pattern that you see in terms of the breakdown of the way that you often are a friend to someone else, and I'm talking w- with other people, that same pattern is probably also at work in your friendship with Jesus. If you see it horizontally, chances are it's there vertically. And I know that's true for me. When, when, when I think about my friendship to Jesus, I'll, I'll go through seasons where I'll make promises to Jesus, just like I made promises to Buff. Yeah, I'm going to be there for you, and I'm going to pray for you. And then suddenly I look down at the last time I sent a message to Jesus, and it's been almost, you know, maybe not quite a year, but like I sink into these seasons of isolation and I'll say, yeah, I want you in my life daily. I, I want to experience your friendship and your presence on my heart. But then time goes by and all of a sudden I pick my head up and I'm like, where did my friend go? It's whatever that pattern is for you, I, I want to suggest to you, no matter what kind of friend you are to him, Jesus has been a faithful friend to you. Uh, Verses 14 and 19 says, These are the words, the amen, the faithful and true witness. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. 
See, we, we often read this passage about Laodiceans and think Jesus is just being this stern kind of like taskmaster or what this cold sort of person. He's going, no, I'm, the reason I'm engaging you this way, the reason I'm showing you this is because I'm, I'm being that faithful friend. I'm a friend who, starts, who, who finishes what he starts and I rebuke those I love. And we were created to experience a deep, intimate, joy-filled friendship with God through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is not rebuking us because He's disappointed in us or He's mad at us or He's sick of us. The whole reason He's pointing out all of these things to the church in Laodicea is because what they're doing is hindering their friendship and the reception of what they understand Jesus is like. So He's a faithful friend. Now, one of the ways that that friendship gets expressed uh, to these people in particular is that he does not force himself on them. And he doesn't force himself on you. Now, I've never, in all my, I was reading through like eight or ten different commentaries, and nobody seemed to pick up on this. But the more I read it, the more obvious it became to me. The, the fact that Jesus, look at the kind of language he uses when he's talking about his engagement of this community. He says, um, you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. In verse 18, he says, I counsel you. I advise you. I, I, I'm, I'm giving wisdom to you to buy from me gold. And then he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. Like, is he just being passive? No, because he's... Lest we forget who Jesus is, he reminds us at the very beginning, these are the words of the ruler of God's creation. And I don't know about you, but I would expect the ruler of God's creation not to use words like wish and counsel and knock. I would expect him to come in and go, I demand. I order. I break down the door. But he doesn't do that. He's a king, but he's not just a king. He's a friend. He's a friend who pursues. And he, even though, I mean, think of this. He's the source of all life, but he does not force that life down your throat. He gives you the opportunity to choose him just as he's chosen you. I, I was thinking about this like as a dad. When it comes to my relationship to my kids, I... I often default into like a command and control posture of parenting. Where I'm like just, I, I just like dictate to them, here's what I expect, here's what I want you to do. You know, do it or don't do it. And so I like, you will, you won't, go, stop, stay, because I said so. <laughs> like, you know, all these terms that we use in, in parenting to kind of exercise our control over our kids. But you know what I'm learning is that my kids get a little bit older. Is that they, they start to make choices. And I, I, as a parent, I want to kind of continue to default in that sort of toddler realm where I'm just, they need me to tell them everything that they need to do. And if they don't do it, then as a, what's my, my reaction as a dad when they don't do what I, off, what I tell them to do is to now kind of come in and shame them with the fact that they didn't do it. And so the, like, 
they'll do something and I'll say, hey, you probably shouldn't do that and they do it anyway. And I'll come in and I'll go, well, I told you. You know? What am I doing? I'm, 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 I'm trying to exercise control over their hearts rather than actually joining them in the consequences for their sin. And family, that's what discipline is. Real discipline, the discipline that Jesus is talking about is saying, I'm, I'm going to show you, I'm going to counsel you on the way to go, and I'm going to show you the, the consequences if you don't go that way. But friends, if you go that way, I'm not going to shame you for it. I'm actually going to join you in the shame. I'm actually going to get down on my knees and embrace you even if you make poor choices. See, we, we often misunderstand God as a judge when we think He just wants to catch people doing bad things and punish them for their sins. But that's not what He does. As a friend, He shows you actually the, the natural effects of your choices. He shows you what your choices are going to result. He, he, he shows you the fruit of those choices. But then when you eat of that fruit, I mean, think of Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, if you eat the fruit, you're going to die. And then they eat the fruit anyway. And what does God do to them? He comes to them and says, where are you? And when they've tried to cover themselves and hide from him, he says, no, I want to be with you and I'm going to make better choices and I'm going to give you new clothing. He doesn't come in and go, I told you so. He comes in as a friend. I mean, even the harshest thing that Jesus says in this whole passage, in verse 16, he says, because you are lukewarm, and we'll get to what that means in a second, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now that's, that's hard language, is it not? But to think, I mean, think about this. This is no different from a parent going, if you, if you continue to live under our house as though you don't want to be here, then I will remove you from my house so that you can see what it's like to live on your own. Now, if you, if you needed to make that choice for your child, would it rip you apart to have to do it? Absolutely. And it rips Jesus apart in the same way to say, I don't want to do this, but I might have to. And the, that word for spit is actually, the, I mean, the translators are like um, softballing it a little bit. It's the word for vomiting. I don't know if you've ever had a stomach virus, but I did. <laughs> um, and, and I actually had food poisoning. And I, when there were toxins in my system... I realized that they did not want to remain in my system. <laughs> they were doing everything that they could to get out, right? And so my body was basically saying, okay, you, need to, you want to get out? You need to get out? I'm going to get you out. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, look, if you're, the whole point of being in relationship with me is that you live a life of dependency on me. And when you live a life of autonomy, when you're satisfied with your wealth and your health and your status, when you're, when you're living a life that no longer depends on me, then yeah, I, in love and in pain, I will hand you over to that desire which you have which will lead to your death. But it's not because that's what I want. It's because it's what you want. I will not force myself on you because I'm a faithful friend.
God off, what Johnny Erickson Tata says, God often allows what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. This is from a woman who's been a paraplegic since she was 18. No matter what kind of friend you've been to Jesus, Jesus is a faithful friend to you. He does not force himself on you, but rather he shows you the self-inflicted wounds of your condition. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, well, what is, the, what is the thing that Jesus calls the Laodiceans to turn away from? Because he's, he's saying there's something that you're doing, there's, something, there's a mindset that you have that you have to, uh, that you have to throw out. Um, and what is that? In verse 17 it says, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And we, we already mentioned that the Laodiceans were famous for their self-sufficiency and their independence. I mean, they didn't even need Rome's help, right? We don't need healing. We don't need clothing. We don't need money. We've got it in abundance. And Jesus looks at the bride that he's called to himself, that he's put in that city, and he says to them, you have become so saturated by your culture that you are out of touch with your true condition. You, you, you've you've um, adopted and adapted the culture so deeply into your life that you think of yourselves more as Laodiceans than you do followers of Jesus. Because, I mean, the culture of Laodicea was we don't need money because we have plenty and we don't need clothing because we make our own and we don't need healing because we have our own doctors. In other words, we're, we're fully independent because we've provided for ourselves. We don't need anything. I mean, can you think of a, a culture that has ever existed on the face of planet Earth that looks more like Laodicea than America. I can't. I don't know of one. And we have so, so, so much in common. I mean, we have immediate access to jobs and wealth. And yet, you, you probably don't think that you get paid enough, and I understand that, but I mean, compared to other parts of the world, the access that you have to, not just to wealth, but like safe banking practices, the fact that you can put money in a bank account and it's going to be there in 50 years, same amount with a little bit of interest. You know, like 80% of the world does not have that luxury, and so they keep their money anywhere that they can cram it because they don't trust the local banks. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Our access to, to clothing and to medicine. And what are all these things doing? They blind us to our real needs. I mean, I still remember when I got out of college with a degree and debt, and, um, and I, I, my major was in computer science. So I was banking on the fact that I was going to get a job in the tech industry. And about two to three months after I graduated, I felt 
Jesus calling me to give my life to something different and to lay my life down for other college students because Jesus had come and he'd rescued me in college. And, and I just felt like he wanted me to, to go after other college students and tell them that there is, there is a God who loves them and died for them and wants to be with them, just as I had discovered all these things, right? And when I made that decision, it was a decision to go from banking on uh, at least $30,000 a year to raising my own support. And I, um, one of the two years that I was doing that, I made like somewhere between sixteen and 18000 I was living in Philadelphia at the time. And I, re- I remember Manny and I were dating at that point. We went down to the shore one day. We had barely enough money to get gas. And we had barely enough money to, like we had to wait until the, the people collecting the tags like left because we couldn't afford to get on the beach. And we, we bought like two pieces of pizza for like less than five bucks. And I remember sitting on the beach with Mandy holding the slice of pizza in my hand and going, God, thank you for the resources to buy this today. And you know what? Today, I can go down to that same shore and I could buy five pizzas with no problem, just like that. And yeah, I, I sit down and I thank God for that same pizza because that's part of our routine. But I'm not desperately thankful for the resources to pay for it anymore because I think I've done a good job. I've earned the money to be able to use on this. And so my desperation for God to continue to bring resources into my life is now diminished because I think I'm pretty self-sufficient at this point. See, the, the greater access you have to the things that promise you what only Jesus can give, the, 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 the quicker you are to become satisfied with those resources and the more blind you are to your deeper needs. And, and this is something that we all do. We, you know, every single one of us was designed to get from God at least three things. Right? All of us were designed to receive from our Maker security, significance, and wholeness. We were made for it. But because we have access to, to, to means which promise those things to us, we end up looking to those things rather than to the one that promises to give it to us in abundance. And so we need security, but instead of acknowledging our spiritual poverty and coming to God and being desperate for, for His wealth, we, we, we cover over our need with material wealth. But don't you know, I mean, like, even if you do that, you're like one pink slip away from being just as desperate as you were before you got that job. We need significance in the world. We need to cover over the shame that we know is present because our Our lives don't match up to the life that we know that God desires for us to live. We're less than righteous. But in order to cover that need, in order we create a fig leaf to clothe ourselves with things like shopping for clothes and cars and homes and 
having exceptional kids or having a beautiful face. And all those things, we know deep down, they don't provide us the significance that we're looking for. The car breaks, the home gets problems, the, 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 the dress that you bought now suddenly looks old, even though you've only had it for a week, or it no longer fits the way you thought it would, or it doesn't look the way that it looked when you were in the store, because they have some kind of magic in those mirrors, and I don't get it. We look for wholeness, and we want healing, we want restoration, we want, we want perfection. And so we buy into the product or the diet plan or the exercise program, thinking that it's going to turn our lives around. And it does for a season, but internally we know we're just as broken as before. Just, I mean, I have to be clear, a life that seeks after security, significance, and wholeness in things other than Jesus... It's not just broken, it leads to burden. It leads to a heavy burden. Because who's got to be the one that goes out there and gets that gold and gets that clothing and gets that healing? If you're looking to do it for the world, it's, it, it's you that's got to do all that stuff. And you do that long enough, and, and you're going to feel the weight of needing to procure those things for yourself again and again and again and again. exhausting, isn't it? You don't need to pretend that you're self-sufficient anymore. You don't need to live up to other people's expectations of you anymore. You, you don't need to settle for quick fixes for your deep needs anymore because the good news is that Jesus is a faithful friend who meets you in your true condition. He meets you where you are. He doesn't expect you to be self-sufficient. In fact, that's the thing that's holding him back. He says to the church, I, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes so you can wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and a salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Do you realize those are the three things that the Laodiceans say we don't need? And Jesus is painting an alternate picture for them, for us. And he's saying that blessed are those who know their own poverty, for they will be rich in my grace. Blessed are those who know their own nakedness, for they will be clothed in my righteous, perfect life. Blessed are those who know their own blindness, for I will give them spiritual sight as they seek me and rest in my wisdom and leadership for their lives. You can only get those things from me, Jesus says. But the good news is because I died and rose again, they're already bought and paid for. And so the only resource that you need to buy from Jesus is the realization that you have nothing to offer Jesus. And ironically, that was the only resource that the Laodiceans lacked. I, I think, when I think of like, the reason why my friendship grows, like waxes and wanes with Jesus, is because I think the defining lie of my life is that I can get what I need without Jesus being the one to give it. 
I, I think that I can have the riches of heaven without the king of heaven. And it's a lie. And, and the good news is that doesn't have to be my story and it doesn't have to be your story anymore. Because no matter what kind of friend you have been to Jesus, he is a faithful friend to you. He does not force himself on you, but rather he shows you the self-inflicted wounds of your condition and he welcomes you back into your calling. Um, what is this whole like lukewarm thing about anyway? You know, he, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. And because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. What is... What does it mean to be a lukewarm Christian? Um, it's a rhetorical question. Because <laughs> nobody would want to answer it. Because <laughs> I've already said there's a whole lot of misunderstandings in this text. So you're like, all right, I'm going to say something and it's going to look dumb. And uh, See, it, we often think that to be a lukewarm Christian means that we're not spiritually hot enough, right? That it has to do with the, the, our spiritual temperature, that we're not fervent enough or passionate enough, and that, that Jesus is basically coming to His church and going, like, hey, try harder. Like, get hotter. Like, come, come on, guys. Like, like, warm yourself up here a little bit. But that doesn't make any sense because He says at the same time, I wish you were cold. So what is it that Jesus is getting at? I think if you actually look closer at the context, you see that, that Jesus is saying, look, in your self-sufficiency, in your comfort, you are blind to what I've called you to be. Now, here, here's why I make this argument. is because for all Laodiceans' resources, the one natural resource that they lacked, the one thing that they didn't have, was a good water supply. And this is, this is famous. I mean, the water that they did have was murky and nobody wanted to drink it. And so to resolve this problem, they would pipe in or they would use aqueducts to get water from other sources. And there were two good water sources that were in the area. One was from Heropolis and the other was from Colossae. And they were very different. So Heropolis was famous for the fact that they had hot springs. And people would travel from all over the place to go to these uh, wells where there was this steaming, bubbling kind of warm water. And if you were sick, if you were in need of healing, if your body ached or you had symptoms and you're like, I don't know what's going on with me, someone would go, hey, go to Heropolis and go sit in their baths for a little while because you're going to feel a whole lot better. It was water of healing because it was so hot. Now, on the other hand, you had Colossae, and they were a little higher up into the mountains and they had a spring of fresh water that flowed down from the mountain. What was the temperature of that water? Ice cold. And so if you wanted a cold, refreshing drink of water, what city would you go to? Colossae. Now, here, so you have one source of water that's providing healing and help to people. You have another one that's providing cool refreshment. What's the problem, though? They aqueducted all the way down to Laodicea, and by the time it gets there, the hot water's no longer hot and the cold's no longer cold. They are lukewarm. What's the problem with being lukewarm? 
Yeah. You can't drink it. You can't bathe in it. In other words, each of them have lost the properties that made it life-giving to people. You see why it's an issue of calling? There's a reason why Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know your works. I know the things that you've been up to. And those are the things that indicate the fact that you're lukewarm. You're no, you're, you, you aren't being a help to people. I, mean, see, I put you in the city in the first place and I called you to myself. Why? Why did I do that? It was so that you would be a community of healing and refreshment. That on the one hand, you'd be, you'd be a source of healing to people. That, that people, when they're around you, would feel physical and mental and emotional healing. They would sense the work of God in their, in their lives even before they come to know me. Because they know you. And then on the other hand, I, I want you to be a presence of refreshment. That you, that you would speak the soothing words of my gospel into people's lives, that they would receive it as good news. You wouldn't shut up about it, but that you'd be just profuse in your, your, your good newsing of people. You'd constantly be going, Jesus is the way. Come back to Him. He wants you. He's a friend to you. He loves you. And the problem with Colossae and the problem often with us is that we've become so unknowingly adapted to our culture that rather than remaining a transforming presence there, we have no effect whatsoever. People don't experience our deeds as either hot or cold. It's just lukewarm. And Jesus says, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. And so when I look at your deeds, I see lukewarmness. It's not doing anything for me because it's not doing anything for them. They aren't, they aren't healing. They aren't refreshment anymore. To use it to cross my metaphors, they aren't salt or light. Now, if, I was reading a quote this week from Fernando Pessoa, and um, he says this, tedium is not the disease of being bored because there's nothing to do, but the more serious disease of feeling that there is nothing worth doing. And the problem with Colossae and often the problem with us is that we are a tedious people. We have become bored with the idea of God, with the idea of being part of His church, with the idea of being a Christian. Why? Because we're so complacent, we're so comfortable with our own needs being met that, that we feel like there's nothing worth doing. Friends, I, I've had a lot of conversations over the years with young people as they kind of exit the church, generally speaking. And one of the things that comes up again and again and again, is that they say when they look at the church, I see a group of Christians that is not hot or cold. Now, they wouldn't use that language. But they see friends that are addicted to substances. They, they see friends that are isolated from community because of their choices or because of their identity. They see poverty 
in the world, and they see a church that does nothing about any of those things. There are people that are leaving Jesus today who are doing so because they see needs in the world, they see people in need of healing and refreshment, and they see the community of Jesus losing their ability to go after those things. They see a world in need of a friend. See, the, the issue so often with us is that we can become so comfortable that we, we just miss the needs of other people. We just think, I'm good. And then, and then we fail to see the poor and the sick and the blind and the lame and the naked. Or, or we, we've, we've become so settled on the pseudo-solutions of our world that we end up prescribing those rather than Jesus. You know? Like, we see people in, in financial debt, and we just go, hey, if you just went through Dave Ramsey's course, you'd be fixed in a moment. But, but if, they never, if we never teach them that Unless Jesus is Lord over their wallet, they're going to continue to feel the strain of slavery. We, we, we sell all kinds of products on Facebook and, and elsewhere, but it, if we never tell them that Jesus accepts them as they are and that they are a beauty in Christ, then they'll continue to run to the product again and again and again. And sure, it'll rack up the, 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 the profits, but will it set people free? We're quick to apply the remedies of the world because we've bought them ourselves. We've bought into them ourselves. Rather than realizing that Jesus has been and is the friend that we need and that, that He calls us to be a friend to others. There's good news. Jesus says in verse 21, to those who are victorious... I will give the right to sit on my throne. And it, the, his throne is a metaphor for his authority. And sure, there's going to be one day when we're reigning and ruling in Christ in the new creation. Um, and that is true. And that's kind of in our future. And to be honest with you, I don't know what that means. I haven't a clue. But what I do know what that means today and the promise for this community when Jesus says, I will invite you to, into my throne is, is to say to them, I will invite you back into sharing my purpose for the world and I'll give you the authority to pursue it. In other words, if, as you cry out to me for me to heal your city, I'm going to pour out my power on you and I'm going to turn you into healers again. You'll be hot again. And as you plead for me for the good news to flow down into your neighborhood like rain, I will fill you to be refreshers of others. I'll make you a cool spring. So we live in suburbia where so many of these needs are sort of under the surface, right? But I'm convinced that in spite of the pseudo kind of sufficiency that that our culture clings to, that there are actually deep and real needs that Jesus himself wants to address by sending you as a friend. And here's the thing that I know about friendship. It takes time. 
Every friendship takes time. And it's inconvenient and it takes time to listen and to hear and to respond to those real needs. But you need to know, just even if you've missed the, 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 the train again and again and again, and you're like, man, I, this is me, I'm lukewarm. Jesus says, if you're victorious, which means if you come to your senses and realize your need, then I'm going to give to you the right to sit on my throne. I'm going to fill you to do it. I'm going to make you the friend that other people need. I'm going to send you to specific people, to specific needs that, that need a friend. And if you're a friend of me, I'm going to make you a friend of them. Let me just, when's the last time that you asked him to show you where he wants to send you? When's the last time? Let's, can we make it this morning? Because the truth is, Jesus doesn't want that to, be, to remain a mystery for you. He wants to help you see what and who He's calling to you so that you can follow Him and meet that need as He's a friend through you to others. He doesn't want you to be lukewarm anymore. The good news that we proclaim today is no matter what kind of friend you've been to Jesus, He is a faithful friend to you. He, he does not force Himself on you. He shows you the self-inflicted wounds of your condition. He welcomes you back into your calling. And he stands ready to walk into the parts of your life where you've restricted access to Him. Uh, the, maybe the most famous imagery in the entire thing is verse 20, right? Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. See, um, I, where have you often heard this applied before? The most famous one is Billy Graham to me. And not to pick on Billy Graham, I think it's a fine analogy for people coming to Jesus, but that's not how Jesus is using this metaphor. We often think about this as being non-Christians who come to become Christians because Jesus wants to come into their, their heart. You know, so just ask Him into your heart and say a little prayer and He'll do that. And that's all fine and great, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is speaking to Christians. He's speaking to people that have come to faith in Him. What's the problem? They've shut Him out. They've restricted His access. They've excluded Jesus from the leadership of their life. And in their autonomy, they've shut Him out from their everyday decisions and priorities and relationships. And Jesus is standing in the door ready to walk back into those areas of your life that you have shut Him out to. So the reason I say this is good news is because you, you might be going, I have been so blind to my own need for Jesus. I've been so indifferent to the needs around me. I've been so apathetic to the brokenness of the world. And if that's you, please, please, please know there is good news. That Jesus is the faithful friend who, He is the Amen who finishes what He starts. And that you don't have to go from door to door looking for Him. He's standing at the door looking for you. 
um, as we close, I just I want to invite you actually just to close your eyes for a second. We're going to pray in a moment, but I just... Jesus said his promise to you is that in those areas where you've been most autonomous, in those areas where you have restricted access to Jesus, that he wants to come and eat with you. Now, here's the thing I want you to do. I want... Imagine for a second that you're sitting at the table with Jesus. And that your eyes kind of come up from your plate and you sort of meet Jesus' eyes staring back at you. If you in any way feel that Jesus' eyes are eyes of condemnation, that is a lie. Because the meal that you're eating with Jesus right now is his body and his blood broken for you. He knows that you couldn't measure up, and that's why he, bro- he, he became broken. He knows that you need forgiveness, and that's why his blood has already been shed for you, and his eyes are eyes of welcome and love and reassurance and restoration. And here's what I want you to say to Jesus. Jesus, I have restricted access to you in this area of my life. And just confess to him right now what that area is. I want you to ask Jesus, Jesus, you have a calling on my life. You want me to be healing and refreshment who are you sending me to?